0: We're still in our study in the book of Matthew, we'll probably be here to the rapture. Who knows? We're hoping, we can only hope, we can only hope. This week we're going to be talking about, did you ever wonder if it's all true? Have you ever had any doubts that this Christianity thing is true? Well, hopefully today will help you. And I want you to realize something, when you you have doubts, what goes along with doubts? Disappointment disappointment. Doubts and disappointment are cousins. They go hand in hand. So if you would stand for reading of God's word, we're going to be in Matthew 11, 1 through 15. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they parted, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in garments, soft garments? Indeed, indeed. Those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, And the violent take it by force. All the prophets prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive, receive. If he is the receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of God. Good. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you that you've allowed us to carve time out of our week to study the infallible, inerrant Word of the Living God. Father, we hear from many voices during the week, moment by moment, second by second. We want to hear your voice speak to our hearts, things that are important to you. Open our spiritual ears. Open our spiritual eyes. Open our hearts. May we receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the coming King. Now, I say this every week, so one of these days you're going to get a test, and I'm going to ask you, what's the theme of Matthew? Everyone should know this answer. It should be 100%. But I want you to, want you to think about something. This thing of doubt has, has crept into all of our lives. At some point, with the right stressors, you can have doubt. Doubt. Did you ever wonder if it's all true? Is Jesus the real deal? John the Baptist had a moment of doubt. The right stressor at the wrong time, and anyone can doubt. Anyone can have disappointments. Anybody can have disappointments. Now, chapters 11 through 13, there's a transition. Up to now, Jesus' popularity has been peaking and peaking and peaking. The multitudes are following him, but he's going to experience opposition now, more and more opposition, and eventually the nation of Israel will reject him, and end up. he'll end up being crucified down the road. Israel has heard the message. They've heard it loud and clear about the Messiah. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He introduced the nation who was away from God to Jesus the Messiah. He prepared the way. Jesus gave the message of of the kingdom of heaven. His disciples are going out two by two now to give a message of the kingdom of heaven. And the message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember that word repent, that's metanoia. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, and ultimately leads in a change of direction. I'm changing the course of my life. I'm following the master. Well, Jesus is putting this before the nation of Israel. Either repent and receive me or reject me. And that is what the nation is being offered here. They're being offered the kingdom. Now, remember, for every person that ever has lived on the face of this earth, God is doing something special. The entire Trinity is involved in your salvation. Remember, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him in John 6.44. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment in in John 16.8. And Jesus in John 12.32 says this, If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit involved in your salvation. You experience that at some point in your life. For those who are outside of Christ, they have this constant tug. I'm real, come to me. I'm real, come to me. Believe in me. Receive me. There's this constant plea of God. Now The disciples are going out two by two last week. They, they're departed. They're going to preach. The kingdom of God is at hand. They're also going to enter into Satan's domain, cast out demons, heal the sick, heal the ill, and that sort of thing. Now, this time, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. He will have a moment of doubt. And please remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He's six months older than Jesus. I would imagine they spent some time together, some time together. He was also a forerunner. He was a friend of Jesus, yet he has a question. Are you really the Messiah? If I'm in prison and the Messiah is supposed to set the prisoners free, Why in the world am I in prison? So in verses 1 through 6, are you really the Messiah? Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their city. So the disciples are going off two by two with all the instruction that Jesus has given them in chapter 10, realizing that opposition will come, realizing they're going into a dangerous world, realizing that the Roman Empire is not going to be friendly to him, nor the Jews that are under the control of Rome will be be, be friendly to them. And now he's going to run into this. They're gone, the disciples are gone, and Jesus is going to be preaching in Galilee. Well, Galilee is where John is in prison. Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas is the Tetrarch or the ruler of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. So that is where the preaching is taking place, and John now knows, he hears from his his compatriots that Jesus is preaching in these cities, and he's going to want somebody to go and talk to them. That's the following verses. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Are you the one? Are you the one that we look for? We look for another. And Jesus answered and said to them, those disciples, go and tell John. Now, notice that Jesus just doesn't do what we would do. Yeah, I'm the the Messiah. I mean, it's obvious that I'm the Messiah. Can't you tell I'm the Messiah? You know, he didn't do that. No, he just shows them the evidence. Go tell John the following. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That would be the lost. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So, Jesus, again, his fame has spread far and wide. He's preaching in Galilee. John hears that he's in the region. And John knows something. In Matthew 14, 3-4, John is in Herod's prison. He's in Herod's prison for a specific reason. He's confronted Herod with his sin. Listen to what the Scripture says. For Herod had laid hold of John bound him, this doesn't sound friendly, does it, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. This screams of adultery, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, I want you to notice something about John. He's not timid. He's not shy. He has what I call Holy Spirit guts. And John tells Herod and Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, you are sinning. This is against the law of God. You know the law of God. You're going against the law of God, and he confronts the sin. And this, folks, will cost him his life. But John, mano a mano, man to man, it's not behind his back, face to face, you're sinning. John was not silent with sin, and folks, I want to submit to you, neither should we be. Silence, folks, is being complicit with the sin. We cannot say, uh, I, and it's happened so much, I don't believe in, in abortion. I believe in life. But I believe that you have the freedom to abort your child or to kill your child. You cannot do that and not be complicit with that. The same thing with homosexuality, adultery, all the big sins. How about sleeping around before marriage? That happens all over the place. How about gluttony? Well, that, I, can, I can raise my hand. I, I think I fall into that category. Uh, drunkenness, gossip, grumbling, got that one. Uh, you get the picture. It's being complicit as being involved with sin. So we are to address sin in our own lives as the Spirit of God convicts us, not just ignore it, not just sweep it under the rug. And if it's significant enough and you have a relationship with somebody, you are to gently come up to them and try to re- redirect and say, hey, are you thinking about what you're doing? Now, I want you to think about this. The culture that we're living in could care less about that list of sins that I just, just put out. Could care less about that. They don't even think it's a sin. They just think this is normal living in America. And that is because this is what has happened to America. America is post-Christian. We are living in a post-Christian America. A, where Christian values, Christian morals has, has, has permeated and, and permeated. The church, and I think this is tragic. Now, I want to give you some information from a place that we have been to before. It's the Christian Cultural Research Center in Arizona University, headed up by George Barna. Now, you've heard a lot about Barna surveys and that sort of thing. He says this. Now, listen closely. The irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian Reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity, but not following the precepts of Scripture. How many people do you know say they're Christian, but have no life associated with it? He he goes on to say this. Barna explained, Unfortunately, the theology of this Reformation is being driven by American culture rather than biblical truth. What has happened in most churches, as you know, it's a church, the Bible has gone out and now people are just giving stories and giving anecdotes and cute little, little, little rhymes and funny, funny things and that sort of thing. But the Bible basically has been taken out of churches. What we are, it goes on to say this, what we are seeing is an American Christianity that is rapidly conforming to the values of a post-Christian secular society where the church has bought into these things and says, it's okay to live this way. God says, no, we're living in a culture where we are to be salt and light and to stand for the truth. Now, how are we to do that? Jugular veins distended, teeth gritting, you miserable fallen people. No, that is not how we're to do it. We're to present Jesus lovingly in a spirit of love and gentleness and kindness. That is how we are to do it. There's a methodology. But again, I want to encourage you have some Holy Spirit guts in the culture. Have some guts, folks. We, don't, we cannot allow the people that we love to, to just accommodate their sin and pat them on the head and say it's okay. We cannot do that as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus. John the Baptist was gutsy, the disciples were gutsy, the early church was gutsy, and I want to say the true church will be gutsy. Now you know the true church is was we get introduced to that that term with Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany in in the 19 late 1930s and 40s when he confronted Hitler and he confronted Nazism and there was a true church that said no we will not we will not be complicit with Nazism. We will not walk lockstep with this. We will stand in opposition to this and it cost that man his life. Folks, I want to say to you there is a remnant church today that is gutsy, that actually believe what Jesus taught and the Bible. There is such a church, and the Bible is honest. If you're going to be gutsy, there may be consequences. John is having his doubts in prison. He's in prison having his doubts. Disappointments of life tend to bring on doubts. Now tell me if that isn't the truth. Who hasn't had disappointments that have brought on doubts? John is human, and so are we. Now, for any of us, I'm going to say this multiple times in this talk, so that we walk out of here realizing that doubt can happen to anybody. So this, for any of us, the right stressor at the wrong time, and the doubt floodgates can open widely. For anybody, don't think that you're above this, please. And by the way, who throws doubt arrows? Now we have, okay, you guys get A's. Look at you guys, you Bible students, yes. We have a little slide here, the doubt arrows. Just keep that up there for just a second because doubt is something that Satan loves. What did he first do with Adam and Eve in the garden? Has God thus said that you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Doubt, doubt. Doubt. That's what he casts. But you know what else casts doubts at you 24-7? The world system that's under his control. You know what else casts doubts at you? Is your flesh. Not wanting to walk in accordance with the Spirit, but wants to walk in accordance with the world. Your flesh will also participate in this. So we are to stand against these things. The first doubt came in the garden. John the Baptist is in Galilee. Jesus is in Galilee. John must be wondering, why in the world am I in prison? If you're in Galilee and you're the Messiah, why why am I not being set free? And he's doubt, doubt, doubt is coming at him. Are you the coming one, he says. Are you the coming one? Now, I want to show you something. Now, John knows the Old Testament scriptures. And in Isaiah 61.1, We hear these words, and actually Jesus spoke these words in Luke 14, 18 when he goes to his own town, speaks in the synagogue, speaks this word to the group of people, his homies, and they hear this scripture, and they are convicted at first, isn't this the carpenter's son? And before you know it, they're wanting to throw him off a cliff. Hear the words of the prophet Isaiah that Jesus repeated in Luke, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach caruso, herald truth to the culture, to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison for those who are bound. Now, this could be spiritual prison, but I bet you that John was associating this to him being in Herod's prison. But I think you can, I think Jesus came to open us, Free us from the prison of so many different things. Our emotions, our feelings, our past, things that have kept us captive. The doubt arrows are flying and they're hitting John on target. What is the target of doubt? The mind, the soul. Remember, that is the battleground. That is the battleground. Satan doubt target is your mind, is your mind. And watch what Jesus does. And again, he doesn't address the messengers of of John with just go tell him I'm the Messiah and he just needs to believe this. No, he gives them evidence. He gives them evidence. Jesus counters the doubt barrage in the same way that we need to counter the doubt barrage that's coming at us on a daily basis with the truth. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed. We tell them the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king of my life, not the government, not the cultural changes. I walk lockstep with what he teaches, not what the world teaches. So when they start shooting arrows at you of doubt, folks, you believe the truth. You believe the truth. And this is the truth. Now tell me if this doesn't resonate with you. Most of you will just agree with this, I believe. This is the truth. God is with me through all the fire through all the flames, through all the floods. He takes you by the hand and he says, let's go. And here we go right through it. God is in control. God will take care of this. Now, this is the key. Somehow, some way, sometime, God. And it won't always be in our time and it won't always be our way and we're not going to understand this whole thing. I mean, that's just the way the program works. But Jesus lips to John's heart to your heart is this, I am the real deal. I don't care what the culture says and how they're trying to brainwash you. I am the real deal. Believe in me. And then Jesus says this to these, these, these disciples of John that are going back to give the message to John. He says this, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That word offended is significant. It is the word scandalizo. And it means to fall away, to throw someone unaware to ruin. Oh, you disciples, don't, fall, don't fail under the pressure. Don't fall because I have not met your perceived expectations at your time in your way. Remember, it's God's way. It's God's time, not our time. Believe me, while you're going through this, we aren't going to understand why a lot of things happen the way that they happen. We're not going to get it until we finally get to heaven and we're whole. See, we can't understand it now. We're, we're in a depraved state still. We're saved. We have the righteousness of Christ credited to us. But folks, we're still in a fallen, fallen world, and we still have a sin nature that we deal with. We aren't going to get this all straight until we get to heaven in the glorified state. In the glorified state. So in dealing with doubt... Think about this. Do not allow your doubt to marinate in your soul, to soak into your soul. It just keep living in it and living in it and living in it and marinating in it. important thing is this. Deal with your doubt before your doubt deals with you. Speak the truth. And when I say speak the truth, I mean speak God's word. And if you have to, you speak it out loud so that your soul hears it. You speak it to counter the lies. And I'm telling you, speak the word of God out loud, the enemy flees. He cannot deal with the word of God. That's the sword of the spirit in your spiritual warfare armor. Speak it out loud. Now, I have a picture here that I think is important. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. Now, look, this is going to come at you constantly, but you have beliefs that you can stand on for all of your life. I will believe this until I die. There might be doubts come in, and at the wrong time, Satan's time, he knows when you're down a little bit. He knows when you're a little weak. He knows when you're the most disappointed and you're subject to this. He knows that. So you counter that. You counter that with the truth, the truth of God's Word. The question is this, how do you think John felt when these messengers came back to him? I bet he felt relief. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I believe John's messengers asked this question in the presence of the multitudes. That's how the scripture reads, the multitudes, the crowd. It was public, and Jesus is going to respond in a public manner. In verse 7 through 10, Momentary doubt does not define a life. So don't beat yourself up if you have a moment of doubt. Realize it's something that is common to every human that's ever lived. So, verse 7 through 10. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes who were there concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. A quote of Malachi 3.1. So, John the forerunner. John the man of courage, John the baptizer, John the, pa- the John the, the the prophet, John the one who was popular in the culture where his popularity rivaled Jesus' popularity. Did you know that? He was extremely popular, but he tells people that he's not worthy to unlatch the, the, the sandals from his feet. John was not a wavering reed, and he's telling all these people in earshot that have heard the question, the question brought by the disciples of John. He wasn't a wavering reed. He wasn't blown about by the world's opinions. And I would encourage you not to be blown about by the world's opinions. John was not a man clothed in soft garments. You know how that speaks to me? He wasn't easily influenced by the king, by the kingdoms of this world. He did not bow to privilege. He wasn't into being pampered, and he would not respond to flattery. And John was a prophet of the Most High God. You know what prophets were? Tough as leather. Most of them knew that they were facing death. Tough as leather, unwavering. And again, Malachi 3.1, watch the word usage here. Don't miss the word usage. Behold, this is God the Father speaking. I send my messenger, John, before your face. And in your Bible, that's a capital Y-O-U-R. That's Jesus' face. Uh, Who will prepare your way, Jesus, before you, Jesus. John was a man of steel, honor, and integrity, yet he succumbed to doubt. And again, the right stressor at the wrong time, and doubt can creep in, and disappointment can creep in, and discouragement can creep in. Momentary doubt does not define a life. The important thing here is to not live in doubt. You can deal with your doubt. Even the disciples had to deal with doubt. You know, when Jesus resurrected, he saw, they saw him many times. And one of these places was in Galilee where over 500 saw him at once. And the scripture says that even then, some of his disciples doubted, even though they had seen the resurrected Jesus. In verse 11, we see this. Earthly great does not equate with kingdom great. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, greatest man that ever was born of a woman. But he who is least, now listen to this word usage carefully. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what in the world does that mean? Again, John was an incredible prophet. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from in the womb, in the womb. And Jesus pays a huge tribute to him. There's no one born among women that's greater than John. Then he adds this curious statement, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now I'm wondering what is going on here. John the Baptist knew a lot about Jesus. He was very familiar with Jesus, was intimately acquainted with him. They were cousins. Yet he did not have full revelation of Jesus at that time. He did not see the, he did not see the glorified heavenly Jesus. In the kingdom, when we get into the kingdom, it's going to be different, folks. Every believer will see Jesus as he is, king of kings, lord of lords. There will be no equivocating. There will be no questioning who's in charge. Jesus will be in charge, truly our master, our redeemer, our owner. Our, our owner. Every kingdom dweller will know more about Jesus than John did while he was on earth. In the millennial kingdom, now listen to this, even the least will be greater than the king. Now, if there's someone that is the least, what is that intimating? That there's someone who could be higher than the least. Let's develop this just a little bit. Some believe that we all go to heaven and we're all going to give responsibilities and there's equality. See, we're Americans. We like everything equal. Even Stephen. Okay? Uh, but, but, and I believe everybody, it's going to be a wonderful thing for every human that ever believed in Jesus Christ to make it to the kingdom. But I also believe that scripture teaches of rewards and loss of rewards. And it seems to be this, the scripture does speak of rewards and loss of rewards in the kingdom. Now listen to these verses. Just listen closely. Matthew 16, 27 for the Son of Man will come, this is the second coming, this isn't the rapture, this is the second coming of Christ, will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, then he will reward each according to his works. So there's something about rewards and works associated here. In Matthew 25:14 through 30, it's a parable of the talents, and it seems that your rewards are going to be given, and position in that parable seems to be intimated. Then in Matthew 19:21, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. There seems to be rewards here or loss of rewards. In Romans 2:5 through 6, render according to deeds. In 1 Corinthians 3:11 through 15 is is the bema seat judgment or there are rewards or loss of rewards. In 2 Timothy 2.14, he has an interesting statement. He starts out by saying that if we died with him, we'll live with him. And all that means is that anybody that believes that Jesus Christ is their Savior is pictured as dying with Christ as he died on the cross. We died with him. We have Christ's righteousness credited to us immediately, instantly, the second we say yes. Then he makes the following statement. If we endure all the trials of life seems that there's significant things that God holds high. if we endure, we will reign, rule with him. So there's this, this intimation that there's rewards here. Now think about this. it seems that rewards are associated with responsibility. that apostles would be judge, judges over the 12 tribes of Israel, in Matthew 1928. In the parable of the talents, which I've already spoken about, I will put you in charge of many things, you who are faithful. And in 2 John, verse 8, it says this, Do not lose the things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Not a partial reward, a full reward. Now, the earth dwellers look at you doing anything for Christ as crazy. You mean you're going to invest your time, talent, and treasure? I mean, you could be doing anything that you want. You mean you're going to give money to the church? I can't believe you're doing that. How how crazy is that? But you'll go to the casino, and to the casino God, and give all kinds of money to that, or to the alcohol God, or to whatever else God that you have. Folks, listen to this. Being great in the kingdom is not about prestige and privilege for that individual, Rather, it involves responsibility and sacrifice. And hear this loud and clear. There will be no believers, braggers, no believing braggers in the kingdom. Oh, look at me. Look at my crowns. Well, first of all, I know you're going to have them. You're going to throw them at the feet of Jesus. Every single person in that kingdom will realize, I am here for one reason, Jesus. That is it. It is not me. No, and there will be no jealousy in the kingdom. Can you, can you imagine that? Folks, we reek with this. We reek with jealousy and competitiveness and that sort of thing. That's our fallen flesh. Earthly great will not equate with kingdom great. In verse 12, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Now, this is not easy to interpret, and there's many interpretations of this. Let's see how we can figure out from this. And from the days of John, now notice the time frame, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Interesting statement. Interesting statement. First notice the time frame. This is very important, the time frame. From the days of John the Baptist until who? Now. The time of Jesus. Narrow time frame. What's going on during this time frame? Kingdoms being offered. Kingdoms being offered to Israel. Accept or reject it, Israel. Please accept it. I'm the Messiah. I'll show you that I'm the Messiah. I'm doing all the things the Old Testament prophets said. I am He. I am He. I am He. Accept or reject. That's what's being put before them. The kingdom offer. Kingdom now. They can receive it. They can receive it. Now, the kingdom of Hebron suffers violence, it's overpowered. That word violence means it's overpowered that sounds like opposition to me. Now listen to this. Jesus' offer of the kingdom resulted in opposition from the Jewish authorities and the people. The people are complicit with the Jewish authorities. How do I know that? On Palm Sunday in Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes in and accepts his kingship and at least he weeps over Jerusalem because he knows they are going to be traitors on him. And a few days later, the same group of people are screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him. The nation has rejected, the people of the nation have rejected. And then Jesus makes this interesting statement, the violent take it by force. Can anyone exert force and violence over Jesus? Does Jesus mean violent men will take the kingdom by force? Force their will and their way on Jesus? Make him establish the kingdom their way? They're going to try. They're going to try. It seems that Jesus' day, men wanted the kingdom on their terms. The violent resisted the movement taught by John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles. Remember, the Jesus way is love. Not violence, not force, not coercion, not choking somebody, making them get saved. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The violent, the violent people wanted the kingdom their way. And what do they want? Jesus, we want you right now to rise up and defeat Rome. Do it, Jesus. Do it our way make us great, Jesus. Make us great. But Jesus had a mission, and that mission was this. He had to die for the sins of the world. He had to be their Savior before He could be their King. Now today, listen to what happens today. Violent men reject Jesus' rule in their lives, and folks, it is getting more violent. They resist the efforts of God to bring them into the family of God, this violence will continue and I believe accelerate, accelerate as we get closer to the end until Christ returns and establishes peace on earth and goodwill towards man. Folks, there's not going to be peace on earth. I don't care what the World Economic Forum tells you. I don't care what the plan is of the globalist, there will not be peace on earth. Look at the Ten Nation Confederation that we studied that comes out of the book of, of Daniel and Revelation. They can't even get along together. They have three of them rebel right off, right off the... And then there's, you know, they, three of them rebel, three of them, three of them rebel, three of them rebel. And then the Antichrist puts them down. They can't even get along together without a full totalitarian Antichrist rule. So, the violence will continue until Jesus comes. Now, the Old Testament prophets longed for the day when Jesus would come. Verse 13 through 15 the prophets long for this, Messiah, Messiah, when you coming, Messiah? When are you coming? Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, that would be the kingdom, he is Elijah. John is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the Old Testament prophets spoke about a day when Messiah would come and make everything right. That Israel would regain its place in, in God's economy as the people of God. Right now, they're set aside for a time. Because they had been disobedient, the Jews have experienced amazing persecution. Satan has wanted to eliminate them from the beginning of, of time. Remember, the Jews have to plead for Jesus to return And admit their national sin of rejecting Messiah. If we can kill all the Jews, this is Satan's strategy, then he's not going to come back. We're going to try to thwart the efforts of Jesus coming back. So, with that thought in mind, the Jewish people have been trampled down by world empires and hated today. Remember, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all trampled down the nation of Israel, all have occupied Israel. They never had their own homeland. And I want you to think about the diaspora. It's a fancy word for the distribution of the Jewish people. They It's the only people group in the history of the world that have been spread and dispersed all throughout the world, maintained their identity, were not assimilated into cultures, and then came back and inhabited the very land that they were kicked out of. On May 14, 1948, was a seminal moment. When the Jewish people became a nation, Isaiah prophesied this. Hear what he says: Who has ever ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? The nation of Israel was born in a day. The United Nations struggling with whether to let the, let the Jewish people have a little sliver of land that would be theirs, after World War II, after the Holocaust, there was mercy and pity extended to the nation of Israel, and for a very short moment of time, God moved in the hearts of, of men, and they reoccupied the land. That was a key moment against all odds, against constant Satan and world attacks, Israel which the scripture says is the wife of Jehovah. We are the bride of Christ, the church, but the wife of Jehovah is the nation of Israel survives and thrives today. Why? Why is it because they were so brilliant and they were so great? No, the answer to this is God. And folks, this confounds the world. This confounds the atheist. There is no answer to this except for God. This is not coincidence. God. Now I have a, picture here that I want to show you. Now, there's a lot of stuff here that we're not going to go through, but the thing you want to see is the Holocaust. This was Satan's attempt to eliminate the Jewish people. He was successful killing one-third, six million of the Jews. Antichrist will kill two-thirds in Zechariah, two-thirds. And then the nation, because of the pity, the rebirth of the nation of Israel occurred on May 14th, 1948. The instant, the instant this was declared, the Arab nations surrounding Israel attacked. They were summarily defeated by the Jewish army that was so great and powerful. At that time, they were almost nothing. God. There was a second war in 1956. God. In 1967 was was the Six-Day War. God. The big one was Yom Kippur seemed absolutely impossible for the Jewish army army to be successful. God. Then you've had all these intermediate things here. I want you to think about this. The nation of Israel, before it came into its land, that land was dirty, dark, arid, dusty. Nothing prospered there. Mark Twain went there in 1867 or so, and he said this, A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. I would not desire to live here. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Now, this man has had a lot of earthly wisdom, but he was an atheist. So he's devoid of godly wisdom. But he made a statement here about the land that was true at that point. Do you know when the Jews occupied the land... That land was irrigated, became an oasis. Do you know that they supplied a massive amount of vegetables to Europe? They're the main, the main producers of flowers that, that go into the European area. Their economy prospers. They've discovered gas. Their technology is off the charts. Why is that? God, God, God. Yet the world absolutely hates them, particularly the Arab world. Now, I showed this picture on Tuesday night. But this is so impressive. The Arab nations that surround Israel all want Israel's death, okay? But this little spot of land, out of the whole earth, God has carved out for his people. And the world, the world doesn't want them to have it. One day, Gog will come down and try to defeat the nation of Israel. They will be summarily defeated on the mountains of Israel by God. Not the IDF, Israel Defense Force, not by their Air Force or their great technology. They'll be so overwhelmed, they will know and the world will know God saved the land and saved the people. Unequivocal. They exist because God placed them in the land. Folks, that's a significant thing. When they became a nation, the the prophetic clock just clicked very close to the end. We are seeing today the apostasy in the church. We are seeing today a one-world government push like never before in, well since Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. This push for one-world government is full speed ahead. Now, back to John. John was the last in a long line of prophets with a message that Messiah is coming. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And hear this, had the nation received the kingdom that was being offered, had they received it, of the offer of the Messiah, then John the Baptist would have fulfilled a type of Elijah. Now, Elijah has to come, according to the Old Testament prophets, to prepare the hearts of the people. The people are going to be far from God. John was doing that in Jesus' time. Elijah will do that in the future. I believe he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, Explains Elijah very clearly. Many of the miracles that are occurring there occurred in Elijah's life. I believe that it'll be that time frame that he comes. So Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 through 6 says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah. Every Passover Seder that's taken, there's an Elijah seat waiting for Elijah to come back. The prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a period of time culminating in a day when Jesus Christ will actually come to this earth. This day of the Lord, I believe, is the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period, okay? And he will return the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Notice the key thing. Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He's going to reunite the nation of Israel They're going to have a heart after God, and they're going to be prepared for Messiah to come back. That's the important point. So then Jesus closes this section. (coughs) Excuse me. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is the exact way he closed each one of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation when you were with us during that, that study. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Spirit says that today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to your hearts today. That's the important thing. Anytime you hear the Word of God proclaimed, it is personal. God's mouth to your soul, your spirit. Now, closing thoughts. And I'm going to ask you a question. Do not raise your hand with this question. Have you ever doubted if Jesus is real? If the rest of the world is right and we are wrong? Have you ever doubted the existence of God? Have you ever doubted that Jesus is God, that he will return? How about the question of heaven and hell? You know, people love to talk about heaven. Just about every obituary you, you see... They're with their heavenly something. It's heaven. They're in heaven. It's great. They're with the angels and all this vernacular that people use. But nobody mentions hell. Jesus mentioned hell more than he mentioned heaven. And folks, the majority of folks, unfortunately, are headed for hell in this world because they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. He is the rescue. People doubt the creation account. People doubt that it's all true. John the Baptist, even John the Baptist went into doubt land. So that gives us a little bit of encouragement. If a person desires the truth, folks, this will counter the doubt every time. Now listen to this. To doubt, you must ignore the evidence. To doubt, you must deny and suppress the life of Jesus. He is real. To doubt, to doubt, you must be looking at Jesus well, you can look at Jesus one of three ways. Either Jesus was, this is, this is uh, Josh McDowell's statement, which he stole from somebody else, which I'm taking from him. But anyway, either he was a liar, either he was a lunatic, which, by the way, his family thought he was crazy. The people in the synagogue that wanted to throw him over the hill thought he was crazy, okay? Or he is Lord. He is Lord. He is our ruler, our master, our owner. Which one is he? Which one is he? Now, I want to give you some doubt correctors in your life. As things come into your life, and they're coming in waves, folks, we, we have never been a generation that has been so pummeled on a consistent, consistent basis with doubt arrows. The technology has produced this. It is before our face every moment of the day. We are inundated with this stuff. So doubt corrector number one is Jesus' life, just the life of Jesus. Jesus actually existed, historically proven. There's 30, at least 30 historians that validate the life of, life of Jesus. A couple of Roman historians, Suetonius, Tacitus, say, yes, Jesus existed. Jesus did a lot of these things. Josephus records None of these people are Jesus' Jesus fans. The Jewish Talmud, which the Jews reject Jesus, acknowledge his life. Jesus existed. He had followers. He did miracles. He died on a cross. And guess what? The tomb was empty. Deal with it, world. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. There was eye, there's eyewitness testimony of his resurrection, And Jesus changed the world like no other person ever did. Bible prophecy is another one that will help you assuage doubts. The Bible is the only holy book in the world with fulfilled prophecy. It has literally hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. No other religion has one. One. Islam tries to claim one. I mean, one they try to claim one, and it is so cloudy, so hazy. It's like a Gene Dixon. Well, I don't know if anybody who knows Gene Dixon, but it was an old <laughs> astrologer thing in in the '60s. Yeah, they, they try to pull it out of there. air, prophecies. Look at this book was written outside of time. Scripture says in 2 Timothy three sixteen, it was God breathed. God theo theo theonuptos. God breathed. He put it in the hearts of people what to write. The number three doubt assuager is this, the existence of the Jewish nation. They're the only people in the history of the world that have been dispersed throughout the world and relocated in their homeland. How about this doubt eraser, the creation account? Now, look, at the instant you go into public school, you have to deal with evolution. or And they don't even mention creation because that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. It's, it's, uh, it's all science. Remember this, science is observable, testable, and reproducible. Who was there? Who, who, who observed this? Who tested it? Who reproduced it? There's no science that's, that, can, that can have credibility back to the creation. There's none. And I ask you two questions when you deal with evolution. Number one, can something come from nothing, and that something that comes from nothing have morals and values? Just boom, comes into into existence. Can something come from nothing? There's nothing, 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 nothing ever comes from from nothing. And the second thing is transitional forms. They're really big on this transitional thing, going from one kind to another, one lower level development to a higher level. Folks, there's billions of fossils, billions. And there's not one, one, one evidence in all the billions of anything transitioning from a lower form to a higher form. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. World, deal with it. You have to deal with the truth. That helps cancel doubt. And then this doubt corrector, Einstein's theory of relativity, has been recently confirmed by modern-day physicists. Now, listen to this. This might not sound like a big deal, but it is. That space, time, and matter are co-relative. You can't have one without the other. Now, what this means is that space, time, and matter came into existence at the same moment of time. Now, that, that that's God, folks. That's not evolution. That's God. That's God. God created the heavens. And this last one I'm going to give you is the anthropic argument. And this is taken from... From Frank Turk's and Norman Geisler's book, I Do Not Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. What this means is this. The universe, the earth, has been fine-tuned for human life. The environment is perfect for you. Coincidence? Happenstance? Blind luck? What do you think? No, no, no. no. God created. He just It's not blind luck. In the vastness of the universe, earth is the only place humanity can survive. Earth was made perfect for your enjoyment. The anthropic argument is this. It means anthropos, the the man argument. There's five consonants that represent a mere fraction. There's over 100 of these. I'm going to give you five. Number one, it's going to show you that Earth is fine-tuned just for you. Oxygen level is a 21%. If it were 25%, fires would spontaneously burn burst out on the planet. If it were for 15 percent, we would suffocate. It has to be 21 percent. And by the way, the globalist, the global warming hoax, the climate change hoax. Now look, I know that if I, well, I'm not on YouTube anymore, but I'd be kicked off of that, but uh, look there's not it's climate changes folks, it does change. It goes up and down. There's ice ages, there's heat times. It goes up and down. They're trying to use this to go towards a one-world government. That's all they're trying to use, just grab some other fear tactic, go to a one-world government. How about atmospheric transparency? Listen to this one. If the atmosphere were less transparent, not enough solar radiation could reach the Earth's surface. If it were more transparent, we would be bombarded with too much solar radiation. In addition to atmospheric transparency, the atmospheric composition of precise levels of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and ozone are in themselves anthropic constants. The moon's gravitational and move-Earth's Earth, gravitational interaction is absolutely significant. If it was off by a, a minimum, the tides would not be right. The rotation of the Earth would be off. The orbital ta- changes would make it such that Earth, life on Earth could not exist. Carbon dioxide level, it has to be... If it was any higher, there would be a greenhouse effect. If it was lower plants would die. And if plants die, there's something called photosynthesis that makes oxygen, which we need. It's got to be perfect, CO2. How about gravity? Gravity, listen to this. I, I, didn't, I was going to write the number up here, 1 to the 37th power. Now, just think about that. 37 zeros of something happening, infinitesimally impossible by chance, okay? If the gravitational force was altered by 1 to the 37th percent, our sun would not exist, and therefore neither would we. Just altered by that much, 1 to the 37th zeros. Just I mean, it's incalculably how, how little that, that change would be. The question is this, did these constants just happen by themselves? This will assuage your doubt, folks. What is your explanation? My explanation to this world is God. Not chance, not evolution, God. This helps me when I start to doubt. Just go back to the truth. Doubt can happen to anyone. The right stressor at the wrong time, and doubt can come in. Take a pause and just look at the truth. Look at the evidence. And remember, church, we counter doubt by simply knowing the truth. You just need a little information to counter the d- doubt, to not fall for the indoctrination of the culture. And I, I, I this is a play on words. You know, I'm going to do this next one. It's like war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Well, <laughs> doubt. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Doubt brings disappointment. Disappointment brings discouragement. We don't have to live there. We do not. I don't care what the culture says. And again, shoot some arrows at your doubt. Shoot some arrows at Satan. Hit Satan right between the peepers with some arrows. Boom, of truth, truth, truth. I will not doubt. And then finally, this picture, the last one. Again, doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. I mean, isn't that easier now? I mean, we have information that helps us. Doubt your doubts, folks believe the truth and guess what i will trust in the lord until i die okay let's say that together okay let's just we're going to do this one time together i will trust in the lord until i die folks that will take away your doubt let's pray father thank you for this time thank you that you've given us the infallible and errant word of the living god thank you that our god reigns Regardless of what the world says, regardless of the direction of the world, we will stand on the truth of this word. I will trust in the Lord until I die. Thank you for this time together. Thank you that the Bible is so true. It even has its heroes exposed for doubt. It has its heroes exposed for doing things like David. It has its heroes exposed. It's a true book. Thank you that you've given us the truth. In a world of lies, we have something we can base our life on. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that this is the truth. And thank you for giving us the inerrant word of God that is the word of truth. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.